This is Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood of both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is... Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. I don't recall when it first happened. I can't 
even remember a time in my life when it wasn't a problem. But since I was a young child, I've struggled with a severe fear of blood. Just the sight of it, my own or someone else's, can cause me to become anxious, even panicked. I turn pale. I start to feel dizzy, lightheaded, clammy, even nauseous. And for my entire life, this quirky characteristic has provided endless fodder for teasing. Uh, when I was little, my sister would show me the veins in her wrist, knowing that it would make me squirm. And my dad seemed to think that I was being unnecessarily dramatic until he watched me pass out in the hospital during a botched IV. And he never doubted me again. I've passed out from the sight of blood many times since then. I need to mentally prepare to have my blood drawn. First aid classes were quite the ordeal for me. I even remember struggling when we would sing the hymn as a child, there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins. I would stick my fingers in my ears, the organ played. And these histrionics have provided great amusement for friends and family over the years, especially when I flirted briefly with the ridiculous idea of going to med school. But just this week, I learned that my body's response to blood indicates a legi legitimate mental disorder called hemophobia, the irrational fear of blood. Approximately 3% of the population shares this unfortunate condition. Uh, hemophobia, though, is unique among other phobias in that it causes sufferers to actually pass out. But it makes sense because bleeding is scary. Bleeding is dangerous. It means something is wrong with your body. If you bleed too much, you die. Is anyone feeling lightheaded right now, <laughs> or is it just me? <laughs> uh, can you imagine if someone like me had been born in ancient Israel to the tribe of Levi? If I had been a priest back then, I'm fairly certain I would have spent even more time passing out than I already have, because the blood of sacrificed animals soaks the pages of the Old Testament from start to finish. In Genesis chapter 3, just the third chapter in the Bible, a question arises when Adam and Eve sin and cause the fall of humanity. And it's a question that runs throughout the Bible. We actually sang that question or a version of it this morning. What can be done about our sin? Our sin that leads to death. Adam and Eve tried to answer the question by covering themselves with fig leaves, but God deemed their solution inadequate, and it wasn't because the leaves weren't big enough. It was because there must be blood, a life for a life. And so blood would flow. God provided skins to cover Adam and Eve, skins from animals that had shed their blood because life is in the blood. That's why Jews were prohibited from eating meat with blood. God would eventually establish an elaborate sacrificial system for his people to cover sin. Over the centuries, countless animals, bulls, heifers, and calves, lambs and rams, goats, doves, and pigeons were sacrificed. Their blood shed to address the problem of sin. And some see this as barbaric. But those sacrifices demonstrated the grace of God and the obedient faith of those offering them. 
but they had no true lasting power. And yet the animal sacrifices throughout the Old Testament provide us a pattern for the only blood with true power to address our sin. Only Jesus' blood can purify us and put away our sin forever. That's the theme of our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter 9. The author of Hebrews is trying to convince his Jewish readers that the pattern of sacrifice that they have known for their entire lives was always meant to point to a greater sacrifice, an ultimate offering, and that is the death of Jesus Messiah. Only Jesus' blood can purify us and put away our sin forever. And in our passage this morning, there are three movements. The first is the pattern. The second, for a purification. And third, that's permanent. So let's start by considering the pattern we find, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 9. Look with me there. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood." which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Exodus, you'll know that the first 20 chapters shared the account of God's miraculous freeing of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. But then starting in about chapter 25, the book shifts to these intricate details of instructions for the tabernacle, the traveling tent that housed the worship of God's people. And this pattern would be replicated in the building of the temple, the permanent temple that would be housed in Jerusalem. And in these opening verses of Hebrews 9 is an overview of Israelite worship in the tabernacle and then the temple. And we find a fourfold pattern for worship established under the Old Covenant. A holy place where a priest offers blood of a spotless sacrifice. Place, priest, blood, sacrifice. And the place was the holy place, a special section curtained off from the rest of the temple where peace priests performed their duties. In the holy place was an altar for incense and a, a, a lampstand and a table with the bread of presence. But then there was this huge curtain in the holy place that led to another place called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And in this smaller portion was the Ark of the Covenant that contained important items from Israel's history. This Ark was also referred to as the mercy seat where God would visit with his people. But this visitation required a mediator or the second part of the pattern, a priest. Only priests could enter the holy place and only the high priests could enter the most holy place or the holy of holies once a year on Yom Kippur during the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement was a very special day. It was the highest holy day of their holy days. In fact, it's the only holy day in Israel's calendar that has its own chapter in Leviticus. And we find that chapter in the very center of the book. 
there were several purposes to Israel's rituals and sacrifices, and one of them was purification or cleansing. Listen to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30. Uh, For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. The Day of Atonement actually wrapped all the purposes for Israelite worship into one dramatic, climactic display that happened just one time every year. Faithful Jews would travel from all over Israel and beyond to witness this very important public ceremony where the high priest would enter into the holy place and the Holy of Holies to offer atoning sacrifices, first for himself and his family, and then for the entire nation of Israel. It was a big day. And it was a very bloody day, which leads to the third part of the pattern. Blood. And not just any blood, but blood of a spotless animal. Place, priest, blood, sacrifice. The high priest would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice onto the faces of the people and all over the temple. But the most important place was the Holy of Holies. It was the epicenter of God's holy presence. The location of the Ark of the Covenant. And to sprinkle blood here was the ultimate form of cleansing because the Israelites had committed countless sins throughout the year. And the sprinkling of the blood would symbolically cleanse or purify the place where God met with his people at least for one more year. And that was part of the problem. The ritual would have to be repeated year after year. It was temporary, but that wasn't the only issue. In verse 8, we find another reason these rituals were ultimately insufficient. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Through these regulations of the law, the Holy Spirit was revealing the way into the holy places had not yet been opened. As long as the temple rituals were in place, the Israelites would have limited access once a year to the cleansing blood of the atonement and therefore to God. The old covenant sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper because they couldn't forgive sin. They could cover it temporarily, but a greater sacrifice was needed. This present age, the era of the new covenant, offers now for us a better purification, which we find in our second movement, starting with verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, in earlier chapters of this letter, the author of Hebrews worked hard to convince his Jewish readers that Jesus was, in fact, a high priest, not from the order of Aaron, but from the order of Melchizedek. And now he points to the fact that this high priest Jesus provides a better cleansing than what the Jews experienced on the Day of Atonement. 
And to describe this superior purification, the author uses the pattern from the first 10 verses that the Jews would have expected, perhaps even demanded, a holy place where a priest offers the blood of a spotless sacrifice. The holy place in question is heaven. We see that as we jump ahead to verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. We learn here that the tabernacle and the temple are mere copies made of what we find in heaven, the special dwelling place of God. And these copies need to be cleansed. What the readers of this letter didn't know when they received it was that the temple would be destroyed in the year AD 70 and the sacrifices would come to an end. But it wouldn't matter because the originals are the location of a better sacrifice. Verses 11 through 14 make that clear. Jesus, the superior high priest, enters the holy place of heaven to offer the blood of a spotless sacrifice. But the shocking difference is that he is the priest and he's the spotless sacrifice. The blood that he gives is his own. The cleansing blood that he offers flows from his veins. And the Bible reveals Jesus to be fully God and fully man. And because he's man, he represents us as a substitute, a sacrifice in our stead in a way that no bull or goat or ram ever could. And because he's God, he's perfect, without blemish. The scriptures attest to Jesus as being sinless, and the redemption that his death secured is eternal. The purification of the old covenant was an external cleansing. This is highlighted by the reference to the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer in verse 13, which sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Now, this would have been very familiar to the earlier readers, but to us, we need to be reminded that this is a reference of a ritual that we find in Numbers 19 related to the red heifer. The priest would burn a red heifer along with cedar wood, hyssop, and yarn made of scarlet wool. And the ashes from this sacrifice would then be added to water to be used to purify the garments of priests and to cleanse the flesh of lepers. But those rituals did not change the people. The ashes provided a cleansing of the flesh, and the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement provided a covering of sin, but none of it could cause an internal cleansing of sin. A reformation was needed. Only the true priest, offering the true blood of the true sacrifice in his own body in the true temple of heaven, could offer true cleansing. That's not to say that the rituals of the Old Covenant were meaningless. Far from it. After all, God had commanded these rituals in his law. And Israel's faithful obedience of those rituals demonstrated their faith in him as the one true God. And he counted their faith as righteousness. But their justification was only possible because their faith looked forward to the man who would shed his blood. Blood that had real power to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, when we trust in Jesus' death in our place, we experience an internal change. We turn from sinful behavior that leads to death to serve God. And when God forgives our sin, we also receive a renewed conscience. 
Our conscience is the inner compass that indicates the rightness and wrongness of our behavior. It's, it's like a God-given internal alarm system. But just because we experience cleansing, eternal redemption that purifies us from sin eternally, doesn't mean that our conscience is automatically transformed forever. It needs to be strengthened by the truth of God's word. It needs to be calibrated consistently. Look again at verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The purification that Jesus offers by his blood has true power to save us and power to change our conscience. Uh, this is an example from my own life uh, that I want to share with you. When, when I was a teenager, I had terrible language. Uh, when I was around my friends, I had a filthy mouth. Uh, I'm embarrassed when I think back to the foolishness of my speech. But then when I became a Christian my senior year in high school, the first thing that God did was clean up my language. I had a purified conscience. I, I started to feel in a way that I had never felt before that the language that I was using was wrong. I didn't even know passages like Ephesians 4.29 yet. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who, who listen. But the Spirit was doing a supernatural work, changing me from the inside out. But I didn't just stop using bad words. God was changing my heart so that I didn't even want to use bad words anymore because I started to understand that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I would learn those scriptures related to speech later, but the Spirit was already doing a work in me to transform my behavior to align with His Word. And He's continued to do that in countless areas of my life for the past 30 years. What about you? How is the iron of God's Word sharpening your conscience? How are you strengthening the sense of right and wrong in the context of open and sincere Christian friendship and community gathered around God's word. When was the last time you experienced a correction from the word as you read it or someone pointing you to the word? And how did you respond? How did you respond when you read those words or heard them from another who cared for you? Well, as the apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, the aim of our charge, he's writing to young Timothy as a, a fellow minister, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A good conscience enables us to love others well. We need a cleansed conscience. When the first 10 verses we considered the pattern established under the old covenant for a superior purification. And the superior purification is the emphasis of this section. And to drive his point home that this is a better cleansing, the author provides an illustration of this better purification by using the concept of a will, starting in verse 15. He writes, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. 
For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled them both the, both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, the word in Hebrew for will and covenant are one and the same. But it's clear, based on the context here, that the author is specifically referring to a will. A person's will can't come into effect until that person who wrote the will dies. That's the purpose of a will. And so it is with the new covenant. It doesn't come into effect until Jesus, the one who established this covenant, dies. His blood was necessary. In fact, the words that he uses at the Last Supper with his disciples, the words that we recite every Sunday as we share communion together, are very similar to the words of Moses recounted here in verse 20. There must be blood. There has always been a requirement of blood for, for purification. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now we might find this to be barbaric, but this is what God has established. The life is in the blood, Jesus' blood. And God makes us alive instantaneously at regeneration. And then, over time, his spirit makes us look more and more like his son Jesus, who shed that blood for us through the slow and steady process of sanctification that will last throughout the entirety of our Christian lives. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make the people of God look like the Son of God to the glory of God. That's what he does. And only Jesus' blood can purify us internally and eternally. In this passage, there's a pattern that points to a purification that is permanent. And that permanence is the emphasis of our third and final movement as we see how Jesus, our high priest, puts away our sin forever. We looked at verse 23 earlier. Let's look there again now. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now the new covenant is just that. It's new. And there are parts that are similar and better and parts that are different and better. And here we see that Jesus does not need to offer himself repeatedly like the high priest did with the blood of animals every year. In his one-time death on the cross of Calvary, he offered his blood that has power to put away our sin forever. The purification that Jesus accomplished is permanent. By his own blood, through his once-for-all sacrifice, Jesus secures for us an internal cleansing and an eternal redemption. 
And this is why we here at Sojourn as Protestants in the Reformed tradition would reject the Roman Catholic understanding of transubstantiation. We do not accept the idea that in the partaking of communion, the substance of the bread becomes the actual blood body of Christ and the substance of the wine become the actual blood of Jesus without changing in outward appearance. And the reason is because such doctrine violates these very verses. Jesus' death was totally sufficient to put away the sin of those who fall at his mercy and put their trust in him. He died once and once for all, and his blood has very real power, wonder-working power that makes dead people alive, that makes blind people see. We do not need to recreate his sacrifice week after week. We simply need to partake in the meal that he instituted as a sign of this new covenant. And this is what we do every Sunday as we share the Lord's Supper with one another. And in that meal, we remember his death, we look back to his death, and we look forward to his return as we nourish our faith with the grace of God in the one-time sacrifice of his very own son. And Jesus' promised return is where the author turns now in the final verses of this chapter. Verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now there are two prevailing narratives surrounding death in our culture. There, there are lots of views related to what happens when we die, but there are two that we're most likely to hear when considering death or when someone we know dies. And the first is this, when you die, that's it. There's no heaven. There's no afterlife. There's no consciousness. You just die. You take a permanent dirt nap. And so you best make the most of your life while you're above ground. That might look like philanthropy for some, trying to do as many good works as possible, or it might look like hedonism for others, trying to get the most pleasure out of life and everything in between. But this life is all there is. The second prevailing view in our culture of what happens when we die is basically that everybody goes to heaven, or at least most people, the, the good ones. But the problem with this sentiment is that the line between good enough and not good enough is completely arbitrary. There is no revealed standard about what constitutes sufficient, sufficiently malevolent behavior to warrant censure from God or sufficiently good behavior to receive his grace. Neither of these views aligns with what the Bible says about what happens when we die. To start with, the Bible is not positive or even neutral about our natural moral condition. Uh, take Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, for example. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's none who does good, not even one. Or Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then later in chapter 6, and he makes it clear that the penalty for that sin is death. Now that's just a small sample 
from the Bible. There are plenty others like them, and none of them supports an everyone goes to heaven because everyone's pretty good sort of view. The scriptures, including these last two verses of Hebrews 9, tell repeatedly of a coming judgment where we will be judged according to our works. Even Jesus promised this in Matthew 16, 27, when he said, referring to himself, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Because none of our works are good enough, faith in Jesus is essential. Our God is just and righteous, and so every sin, every violation against God and his holiness must receive justice. And that means that either we who committed those sins will pay the penalty, or Jesus will pay it in our place, which he's already done through his perfect once-for-all death and resurrection. And when Jesus comes back, he will not come back to offer his life as a sacrifice once again. That work is finished, and it was completely and totally sufficient to redeem and to cleanse all who receive it by faith for their sin. When Jesus comes back the next time, he's coming back as judge. And he will come back to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. So this begs the question, are you waiting for him? Are you eagerly awaiting? waiting for him? Do you have one eye on heaven knowing that Jesus' death is sufficient to put away your sin forever? The only thing you need to do is believe to accept his sacrifice on your behalf and to receive this gift that God has given by his grace. Because, as Paul writes in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Believe in this sacrifice for yourself and eagerly await Jesus' return. There's no better time than today, even now, as we consider this word together. Or if you still have lingering questions about what all of this means as we talk about the basics of Christianity, let us know so that we can help you find the answers that you need to put your trust in him. Once we believe this gospel of Jesus, this good news of death in our place, we might be tempted to live in a way that takes advantage of God's mercy, to think lightly of his holiness and and his call in our lives to be holy as he is holy. Even though we can never outsin God's grace, we we certainly shouldn't try. That's why I want to revisit this concept of conscience and good works briefly in one final attempt to apply this passage for us as Christians. Because verse 14 asks the question that we've already considered multiple times together. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus' blood has the power to put away our sin forever, to justify us and fit us for heaven when he comes back to claim his bride, the church. But Jesus' blood also has the power to purify us in this life, here and now. The blood of Christ can cleanse our conscience. When we trust in his blood for us, we receive the Holy Spirit who empowers us to obey God's holy law. And he convicts us of sin and he prompts us toward repentance and righteousness. He urges us to confess our sins to God and others, which has a purifying aspect as we rehearse week after week in our our confession together. Our good works cannot save us. Only Jesus can save us. But he saves us so that we might do good works that bring glory to God. 
So where has he pricked your conscience today? Where is an area of your life that you've allowed to slip? Perhaps your conscience has become defiled or even seared to the point of hard-heartedness. Today is the day of repentance and cleansing. And consider sharing your conviction with a trusted friend or someone in your parish or a pastor this week. The first step toward cleansing is confession. If this, uh, what the question that we considered at the beginning, Genesis 3, is what can be done about our sin? And the answer is, it's already been done. Only Jesus' blood can purify us and put our sin away forever. And he shed it for you, and he shed it for me. And I think we can all be glad that we're no longer beholden to the intricate demands of the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled the 613 commands, commands of the law, and he fulfilled them perfectly. And I'm, I am personally thankful that we no longer need to perform or witness bloody sacrifices. And I'm greatly moved that Jesus' sacrifice on the bloody cross was sufficient to atone for our sin. And I'm thankful that we have the true lampstand, Jesus, the light of the world, to light our path by the way of truth. And I'm grateful that we no longer need the bread of the presence when we have the ultimate bread of life who gave himself for us. And I give him thanks and praise that he has given us direct access to God through his death and resurrection. No longer through a priest who offered sacrifices day by day and year by year, but right here and right now, every day, all day, we have access to God. The pattern of the sacrifice that we find in the Old Testament was always meant to point to a greater sacrifice, an ultimate offering, the death of Jesus, our great high priest. What would it look like for our neighborhood, for our city, if each of us took this passage to heart? If we committed ourselves to the purifying work of the Spirit in our lives day after day? What would Sojourn Heights look like one year from now because we availed ourselves to the power that Jesus' blood provides to purify us and put away our sin forever? There's only one way to find out. Let's pray now and ask for his help. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have made a way for us to deal with sin. You've provided a solution for the very real problem that our sin creates and the separation that we experience from you, a separation that will last forever apart from your gracious intervention. And so we thank you, Father, for sending your son. We thank you, Jesus, for shedding your blood. And we thank you, Spirit, for raising Christ from the dead and for giving us the power that we need to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. We thank you, Spirit, for cleansing our conscience. We thank you for prompting us to confession. And I pray in the days to come that we would be a people of confession and seeking your healing, cleansing, powerful work in our lives together as those who love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.